Missouri Governor Jay Nixon just finished up his final State of the State address, and Representative Gina Mitten has some thoughts on what the governor said and didn't say. The Richmond Heights Democrat joins us next on another edition of Politically Speaking. Nine, eight, seven, six, six five, five, four, three, two, one. Uh, I think that is fair yes, to say. I say hands to kiss and babies to shake. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think my record speaks for itself. That's a really good question. Hello and welcome to the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio in St. Louis is... Colleague Joe Manis. And the state representative that represents the stretch of road that I drive through every day to get to work. We have in studio today... Uh, Representative Gina Mitten, 83rd District. Now, before we uh, pelt you with hard-hitting questions, <laughs> uh, just tell us a little bit about what the district encompasses, because it's a fascinatingly uh, I was gonna say yeah. strange district but I, I don't I know you don't want to insult the good people of your district absolutely not I mean it, it is a it it was a part of the redistricting in 2012 it took parts of five former state rep districts so it, it, it does have a kind of a mishmash as it were but I run roughly from Rock Hill to the hill and I include all of Rock Hill most of Brentwood all of Maplewood parts of Richmond Heights south of I-64 um, parts of Webster Groves, and a third of my voters are actually in the city of St. Louis in the 23rd, 24th, or 10th wards, or roughly Franz Park, Clifton Heights, Allendale. That and what I was referring to is you include parts of Hampton, and that is a very busy thoroughfare. That's that, right. And, the uh, Drury Inn right there is in my district. The, the Drury Inn was where people uh, came to stay when my wife and I got married. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, I first met you during the whole Steve Brown stuff. That's right. Yes. Because you, yeah, Steve Brown was the up-and-coming state rep that had, who had to resign during the Jeff Smith scandal, and the bottom line is you were among the. This is when the lines were very different. Correct. And so you were among the uh, people who were looking at possibly replacing. That's right. When it was a seventy-third, and it was basically yes. a north-south district running from Maplewood to U City, I believe. Yes, I mean it's it's so funny in the county, particularly. The state rep districts had, were changed dramatically during redistricting, and so there's a lot of people in different numbers and in different areas totally. Yes, and it's totally. very difficult to walk some of those doors uh, in 2012, you know, to explain to voters, in, in, for instance, in Representative Kirkton's district, to say, no, I, I didn't do that. <laughs> you're, not, you're, 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 not, you're not primarying uh, Representative exactly. Kirkton. Now, we could talk about your, your, your strange district for, for hours, but we want to know a little bit more about you, how you got into politics and your background. So, first of all, I'm going to short circuit Joe here. Where did you go to high school? And You uh, stole my question. Uh, and and, now, and uh, I, I always like stealing her thunder, but just tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, well, actually, I went to high school at University City, but I didn't graduate. I'm, I'm a high school dropout, um, so that makes me a little more unique, I would say, amongst my colleagues in, uh, in the General Assembly, but I grew up in U City um, and went to U City schools of Delmar Harvard and Brittany Woods uh -huh. and um, U City High, and then I moved to Los Angeles uh, for a while and came back to Missouri in the mid-1980s. Um, and have been here ever since. Do you want to talk about why you were in L.A.? Uh, well, my parents were divorced. My mother moved there, and then about a year after I moved to L.A., my mother moved to New York. Oh, wow. So I was um, I started. I took my GED within weeks of turning 16, and I worked full time. And I went to night school for close to 20 years before I got my bachelor's degree. Wow! Yeah, because I mean, L.A. is so different from. 
and it was a it was a an interesting time and place and an interesting age but i also knew that i wanted to have children and own my own home and i didn't think that southern california was the was the place for me to do that now you're one of the you're one of the few elected officials with a a very prestigious law degree from washington university i I am i'm high school dropout to washu law (laughs) you got your uh law degree i think in 2005 according to your bio yes that's right so as i said i worked i worked full time um and went to night school on and off for a lot of years. I got a, I worked as an office clerk when I lived in Los Angeles in a law firm, and then I was a legal secretary. And when I moved to St. Louis, I continued as a legal secretary, ultimately became a paralegal. And during that time, I was also going to night school. I have a an associate's degree from St. Louis Community College at Merrimack in uh, legal assistance, and then got my bachelor's degree at UMSL, and um, then a law degree from Washington I've, University. I've always remarked that there, there, it's rare to find a Washington University law degree holder in any elected politics because I think that they all go out of state and get very lucrative jobs now or something like that. That's just a. That's just the misconception. My daughter, by the way, is a WashU law grad. So I, I know. I'm a out. very assumptive, stereotypical person, as you can probably tell. As is my husband, for the record. Yes. And I'm just trying to remark that it's a as it's a very, very excellent school. My wife works there as an engineering librarian, and it's the, the higher education jewel of St. Louis, so to speak. Yes. It is, and I, I was no fortunate question. enough to get a, a scholarship that made it possible. Yeah. So you were on the Richmond Heights City Council before you ran for the state legislature in 2000. 2012, um, not in a committee setting, as Joe alluded to. What, what prompted you to get involved in politics so in the first my, place? My father, actually, my mother was a, is a teacher, was a teacher, and my father is or was a minister and a psychologist who worked at the state hospital for years and years. And so, you know, I grew up spending my Sundays at the nursing home. Um, and so community service and um, public service and was just instilled in my family and I from very young ages. And um, so I kind of went from that. My first political protest was when Ronald Reagan fired the air traffic controllers. I actually lived in Los Angeles at the time. And um, my first door knocks were for Jimmy Carter in 1980. I don't even know if I was old enough to vote. Um, So I kind of went from being someone that was active in those kinds of roles and um, and in 2004, when an opportunity to join the council presented itself, I, you know, just sort of realized, well, maybe, maybe being on the policy side instead of the activism side has some benefits to it. And lo and behold, I found that I enjoyed it and could be fairly effective at it. And that's sort of what what decide, you know prompted me to go to the next step. So, what prompted you after you were you served on the Richmond Heights City Council? I guess for eight years, nine years. Two thousand four till two thousand and twelve, December thirty first, two thousand twelve. I think. What what, prom- what kind of compelled you to move from the municipal arena to the state arena? To the uh, well, and again, I think that's just sort of a logical next step. And frankly, you know, and. Uh, uh, some colleagues and other reps suggested that I think about it. It wasn't something that I would have thought about at all in 2004, but when somebody said, you know, I think you might be good at it, you should consider it, and I thought about it and decided to do it. And you ran in a Democratic primary in 2012 against Jim Trout, who, for many of our listeners who have long memories in Missouri politics, um, was kind of the impetus behind getting rid of a a bill in 2006 that uh, waived campaign finance limits. He He... He was kind of the plaintiff in that suit. It was a successful suit. Campaign finance limits were reinstated. And then in 2008, they were taken off again. So it's kind of a footnote. And he was also a state Senate candidate in 2008, unsuccessful. Mm -hmm. And that was a situation where the Democratic primary was the election. It's a very Democratic district. But what was it it like running in that race? Um, 
it was the same race that I would have run whether Mr. Trout had been in it or not. And that, uh, you know, it was knocking doors and making sure that I got my message out. Again, you know, I had been involved in Richmond Heights politics. My husband's been on the Maplewood Richmond Heights School Board for a very long time. Um, I have not only, uh, you know, close friends, but I have family that lived in the city, in the district. They're, they're my, my, my sister's a constituent, which has its own problems, but uh, <laughs> who lives in the city of St. Louis and a niece and a nephew going to St. Louis Public Schools. And um, so I had kind of roots in a, in a large, large swath of the district. And it was just like any other campaign, just getting your message out and interacting with voters, finding out what they, they want they want in a representative. So now you're in Jeff City, I mean, back and forth, mm-hmm. but the Democrats are this part of this beleaguered minority. And it was real obvious during the State of the State address that the governor gave earlier this week. Uh, I mean, you could see so clearly um, s- sitting in the press gallery in the House Here's the little Democratic group. Here's the big Republican group. The Democratic group is practically the only one applauding anything. So so it was pretty um, uh, humorous in some ways. I mean, it's, you know, it's sad, but I mean, from looking at it. So I'm just curious about how, how do you try to get anything across when you're in such a s- small minority when the Republicans have a, an effective veto-proof majority in the House if they want to exercise it? Well, that's certainly tough. Um, I'm a firm believer in the idea that you actually can get a fair amount accomplished if you're willing to not take the credit for it. And there are things that Democrats and Republicans agree on, and there are certainly pieces of legislation that benefit all Missourians that um, maybe need a little dusting off or a little a little, a little help. I mean, just last week I redrafted uh, some language for a Republican colleague on a family law issue that, you know, we agree on, and he'll carry the bill, obviously, but I've drafted it. So there are things that you can do and, and on the issues that we, you know, on which you agree on or that you can at least come to some compromise about. That's not true for everything, obviously. We, we're going to see that regularly last year. We're, we're going to see it again this year. Right to Work's great example of, you know, you're just not going to, not everybody's going to agree on it. Do you think that's going to come up again or do you think they're going to wait till 2017? I suspect that they'll wait until 2017, although there, you know, there are certainly members of the other side of the aisle that really want to see it, you know, they want to, they want to continue to push for that this year. And We'll see what their Republican leadership decides to do with that. I want to do a little bit of uh, postmortem on the state of the state because Joe was there in Jefferson City. I was listening to the whole thing right over there for our public radio stations across the state. And one of the things that struck me as particularly notable was the amount of time and space the governor gave to issues kind of emanating from the Ferguson unrest. I'm going to play a clip right now that is actually the entirety of what the governor said on the issue. Here's what he had to say. You know, equal opportunity and social justice go hand in hand. One cannot exist without the other. We're upholding these principles and restoring trust through sweeping municipal court reforms and improved police training. Our post commission has put forward strong new rules to update and enhance Missouri's police training standards. We also need to update our use of force statute. Let's support our cops and the communities they serve. Let's get that done this year. Notice he did not say the word Ferguson. So there were a couple of things besides that that were notable. Number one, he didn't mention the Ferguson Commission report, which the governor made a pretty big deal about, which had a lot of policy recommendations that need the General Assembly's approval. And as as Joe mentioned, not only did he not say Ferguson, but many of the other issues like body cameras or independent prosecutors for police-involved killings, 
weren't mentioned in the speech. The only thing that was mentioned was changing a use of force statute that's already unconstitutional and that already doesn't isn't really have any impact. So what was kind of your reaction to some of those realities of the speech, essentially? Well, look, as a Democrat from St. Louis County, I'm clearly, you know, obviously it's it's disappointing. Um, I think that those are real issues. I think that the a lot of the points come out that came out of the Ferguson Commission are important issues that we need to be looking at. Um, I also believe that there are ways to find some compromise across the aisle on some of these on some of these points. Not all of them, but on certainly on some of them. Um, and again, the use of force and the constitutionality. You're right. Although we had a bill last year and we couldn't get it across the finish line, so um, I think that it is. I think that the governor is correct in still continuing to uh, talk about the fact that that needs to be addressed, and it does need to be addressed. And for whatever reason, we were unable to do that last year. Well, to be fair, I think that the governor. I interviewed him several weeks ago, looking at his seven years and all this, and he actually talked about Ferguson more in depth, and he did talk about the commission and some of the other things. I suspect, I could be wrong, that one of the reasons he didn't use the name and he sort of condensed it was his audience. I think he felt that uh, most of the, particularly out-state legislators, the Republicans, they're not really focused on it. It's not a big thing for them. And for whatever reason, I think he decided just not to spend the time talking about it. Yeah. But I, I think that the other thing that he kind of alluded to was the fact that in 2015 there was a major overhaul of municipal governance passed that impacted St. Louis County and elsewhere. I think now they're trying to add non-traffic fine violations to the mix. You're a former municipal official. I know that Richmond Heights didn't have a high percentage compared to some other cities, but what's kind of your take on efforts to kind of expand that 2015 bill to include non-traffic violations. Well, I think that the, some of us recognize that with Senate Bill Five that this was going that you know in some municipalities this is going to be a, a, a consequence, um, and it's look it's a tough balance. It, there's no other way to describe it. It's a tough balance. I think that I think that cities need to be able to have ordinances to um, maintain their cities. Uh, you know, nobody wants to live look. My my constituents in the city of St. Louis, one of their biggest complaints during the summer months when I go to neighborhood meetings are all of the lots, the homes that don't have, uh, they have absentee owners for better or worse with uh, lawns that are 12 inches high or 18 inches high. And so those are reasonable complaints, you know, um, and there needs to be a way for cities or municipalities to enforce some of those codes. We You know, we want to have safety. We don't want to be living, nobody wants to live next to derelict buildings that could um, crumble or explode or whatever. Um, so the question is how to find a balance between a city's need and desire and their constituents' desire to have reasonable ordinances that are effectively enforced and overzealous cities that are using it as a means to collect revenue. And and I, yeah, and I, I understand where like Senator Schmidt is coming from there because he's pointing out places like Pagedale, which are 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 basically ordinance happy, and. I, I could understand how that could be a problem and could be really uncomfortable for people. But it seems like the remedy there, if a city is, you know, basically fining residents for silly reasons, is the residents could organize, kick everybody off the council and put new people in there that repeal the ordinances. This seems like I think basically the bill is essentially restricting the amount of non-traffic fine revenue um, that cities could keep and would have to give back to the state. And, you know, I guess that 
maybe would be a disincentive for cities to be ordinance happy. But it seems like there's a more localized solution there, essentially. I, I agree. Absolutely. I mean, look, I'm from Richmond Heights. We're seeing we're seeing some of that happen in Richmond Heights right now with a development that a large, you know, that a pretty good sized constituency opposes. And they're up. They're talking to their council. They're engaging. And we'll see what ha- ends up happening. We've got a municipal election coming up in, in April. And in that district, actually, there's going to be a contested election. So I, I don't understand, frankly, I don't, I, why that's not happening in some other communities. One would hope that, frankly, you know, one would hope that the killing of Michael Brown could find that there could find some positive sense or some positive meaning out of that. And one of those things I would hope for is a more involved constituency. You know, people don't vote in April elections, and that's a huge problem. It's a huge, huge problem. I want to play a clip now from House Speaker Todd Richardson. He was tapped to give the response to the State of the State speech. He said a lot of more specific things, but he provided this more general observation about the governor's state of the state speeches over the years. Here's what he had to say. In the state of the state speeches I've heard Governor Nixon deliver, he has always had a unique ability to connect with Missourians from every corner of the state with inspiring words and bold promises. However, the unfortunate truth that those of us who serve in this building know is that the Jay Nixon in speeches, press conferences, and television commercials is not the same Jay Nixon we see in the Capitol. Despite his many bold promises during his term in office, Missouri has continued to fall behind the rest of our neighbors and the rest of the country. Now, that's a common complaint from Republicans that the governor is not engaged with the legislature enough. Um, I'm not really sure what their take will be when there's a new governor, whether it be likely Democratic uh, nominee uh, Chris Coster or any of the Republicans. That's for another show. But what's kind of your, your take of that argumentation that the governor is kind of hands off and, you know, says a lot of things but doesn't really follow through on, on things? Well, I mean, I can't say that that's my personal experience. I think that uh, Speaker Richardson is certainly entitled to his opinion. Frankly, I don't understand. I don't understand how that benefits any Missourian to, in my opinion, sort of name call when what we need to be talking about is policy. And I just think I think that those kinds of personal uh, attacks, as uh, maybe not attack, is too strong, but those sort of personal jobs that that doesn't help. That, that doesn't help any Missourian. It doesn't. Now, if the governor was more. Involved, whether one he is or isn't, but let's say he was more engaged than he is on a day-to-day level with the General Assembly. Would the Republicans conf- con- accuse him of a meddling or b just ignore him anyway? I- I'm just curious on your take on it since you're there. I don't see any reason to think that that would not be a likely outcome. <laughs> um, of and maybe maybe the accusation of meddling is, you know, I don't I don't, I don't know that I can speak to that necessarily, but. Um, when the governor has engaged, it's not always been a positive experience. Let's put it that way. Yeah. For the Democrats or for him or both? I, th- I would say for, for, for him. I mean, for him. Yeah. I think that, look, there's a super, we've talked about this already. There's a super mm-hmm. Republican majority there. And um, so, again, trying to engage and trying to make legislation better or come to compromise is not always successful when, when there's that imbalance of power. Now, one of the issues that, that Richardson has brought up right away and that uh, General Assembly is already dealing with is the whole question of ethics uh, rules, regulations, changing the laws. This has to do with how public officials behave. Now, it's not going to necessarily affect the, um, the scandals of last earlier in 2015 that led to the 
Speaker Deal from the St. Louis area to have to step down and a state senator from the other side of the state who was a Democrat who had to step down. I'm interested in your take on this, particularly because you are a woman legislator and there have been some complaints from some women legislators that they are not either treated seriously or worse in the General Assembly. I'm interested in your take on that. And just as a postscript, you were one of the first people to say that Speaker Deal should step down from his leadership position after this news broke. And it was actually, he actually stepped down from office, which was actually farther than you'd ask. But I just want our listeners to know that. But continue. Um, Well, first of all, you know, they're two separate issues. And so the ethics stuff that we're talking about has nothing to do in my opinion, with the scandals that we saw last year, um, there has been a process. There has been a change in the House policy. Um, that process was, in my opinion, not handled very well by the uh, majority leadership in the General Assembly. In fact, I would say that it was handled abysmally. There was a quote task force that I don't believe ever met during the first part of the summer. Then it was suddenly shifted over to the Administration Accounts Committee. I believe that Kip, Representative Kip Kendrick from the um, Columbia area was a guest on your show during this time. He and he spent an inordinate amount of time working, uh, speaking to the colleges and, and trying to come out with some good policy that works for everybody. And this is not a partisan issue. It's, you know, we, we've seen this. And instead of incorporating those suggestions, instead of really engaging the community and the public, the Administration Accounts Committee holds a hearing where they get testimony, including testimony from interns who have some serious complaints as far as I'm concerned, and then they vote out a policy without making any changes based upon the recommendations of the testimony. I mean, that that to me is a sham hearing. It really is. Um, there are problems with that policy. I would hope that we'll be able to address some of those things. But um, it is a it is a, it's difficult on how do you sanction members for for not following a policy that is short of actual harassment. So, for instance, we had the sexual harassment training in the last couple of weeks. I did attend, but. One of my questions has always been, where, what, what is the penalty for a representative that doesn't attend the sexual harassment or, training? Or, you know, what's the penalty for somebody who breaks some of these rules? Exactly. Because that's, that was one of the questions that I think I delved into. Joe, Joe Marshall Griffin and I all delved into this issue. And one of the big questions is if, if there's a legislator who's either harassing another member or a staffer or just inappropriate, I mean, obviously there's indirect pressure for that person to step down. But what is kind of the official sanction if they don't want to step down, essentially? There, there is a process. I actually, uh, the, uh, there is a Democrat that's the co-chair of the Ethics Committee. There is an Ethics Committee that's, that really deals with member misconduct, and I am the Democratic co-chair of mm-hmm. that committee, mm-hmm. um, which has never had any, had to meet. And, and I think generally the idea is that when this happens, a member would resign rather than have to go through that ethics process. Mm-hmm. The problem is, is that the way that the, the, rules for the ethics committee specifically as well as the rules of the house generally um, it's it's very limited circumstances i believe that sexual harassment would fall under that auspices. And so that's sort of my problem is that we're saying you have to follow up. I'm a mandated reporter, for instance. Well, if I don't report sexual harassment that I see, I am not a harasser. I am not following the policy. So it, my, that that shortcoming would not rise to the level of, of, an, of an ethics complaint under the House rules. But I'm certainly not following the policy, and I'm not playing as, as I should be. Now, there's the other side of this question, because That's one side of the ethical debate. The other side is debates about kind of lobbyist influence, lobbyist gifts, whether people can become lobbyists immediately after they end their legislative service. Um, And that's been kind of the focus of 
the the legislature now that it's back in session. I know that you've been somewhat critical of some of the bills that have come out. Just kind of lay out what you see as some of the shortcomings of this approach. So we've passed, last week I believe we passed four, and there's two or three now in the queue. I am also the ranking member of the Government Oversight Committee that heard all of those bills. Um, so of the four that we came out with last week, one, you know, requires uh, increased per- personal financial disclosures. And for the, your listeners that don't know, that's a, that's a form that elected officials have to fill out basically saying that we're not sort of double dealing and we ha- don't have investments that would conflict with our duties. Um, that's great. There's also one that has 30 days to report your travel outside of the state. My concern about that is it could be a gotcha bill. I think I voted no on it. But then we talk about what we call the revolving door right. of folks that lobby immediately after afterwards. And, you know, I think that folks can have differences of opinions about that. My biggest criticism about that bill was, first of all, it was touted as a year and it was actually a session. Then they amended it and made it a full year. My second criticism, and this did get amended as well, is that I think that we need to treat folks that leave uh, public service for lobbying differently if they fill out their term versus they resign early. And we've seen these early resignations um, a lot more recently. Yes. I mean, Noel Torpy resigned, I want to say, within a month of him being elected in 2014. Mm-hmm. And that is just, it's not fair to the constituents. It's its just not fair, no matter what side of the aisle you sit on. And I believe that folks that do, I think that that should absolutely be prohibited. In fact, I think that there should be extra penalties for resigning early under those kinds of now circumstances. I, I haven't read the, the bill super closely, but my understanding is the one-year ban would kick in if a lawmaker runs for re-election or something like that. Well, here's that. the other part of that. So so that part of that leaving early was addressed in that the clock now begins to tick at the end of your term. Mm-hmm. So in Noel Turpy's situation, the clock wouldn't start to tick until, you know, basically the end of December of this year. Um, but to address the other problem is that, no, it doesn't apply. It only applies to folks that are elected after now. So I'll use Representative Mike Colonna. He, he probably won't like me for this, but I'll use him as an example. As a representative that's termed out, he's not going to be running for anything. Yeah, next Democrat year, from a city. Right. Go ahead. And um, and and who that has? There's nothing in this legislation that prohibits him from going immediately to lobbying. Yeah. And now one of the things that I've noticed is that the when some of these ethics bills make it to the Senate, they run into almost bipartisan opposition. I'm going to play a clip from Senator Joe Kevney who was on our show a couple weeks ago, who was critical of the revolving door ban. And I just want to add that we had Dave Schatz on our show, who's a Republican, who made similar arguments. Here's what uh, Senator Kevney had to say about the revolving door ban. We've got 197 legislators up there. Um, they make a commitment for to serve. Uh, I mean, they're term limited out eight years in each house, so 16 years. You get a, a, and I'm not going to do that. I only serve eight in the Senate, but you get a young man in there that can serve 16 years, and this is all he's ever done. When he gets to be 40 years old, you're going to put him out on the street with nothing to do. Um, that's a conversation we need to have. And just so our listeners know, um, Kevin e is the state senator from the city of St. Louis, and he is the minority leader for the Democrats in the Senate. Now, the reason I played that clip is not necessarily for you to, like, respond or bash Senator Kevin e, but it does that kind of speak to one of the reasons why you can't just – why maybe the House Republicans aren't just putting forth a bill that says two-year ban no matter what because it's going to have problems getting through the Senate essentially. <laughs> 
I know. I think that you make an excellent point. And and I think that the senator makes an excellent point as well. My beef is more if we're going to say that if, if the if the Republican leadership is going to say that we, we need a lobbyist ban, if we need we need to stop this revolving door, then it needs to apply to everybody. It needs to apply to folks that are in office today. I don't like the idea that we're going to we're going to pass a law that only applies to folks pros- that are prospectively elected. Um, if, if this is an issue that is important enough, then it should apply to everybody is another issue because we, we there is a revolving door ban federally but what we've seen is many people instead of becoming lobbyists become advisors are kind of non-lobbyists but they're effectively still lobbyists is that going to be the impact if you do pass a two-year revolving door in Missouri, that people are just going to find a way around it, essentially? I don't see any reason to think that that would not be the case. I mean, sure, absolutely, yeah. you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna see that. And and again, we can talk about whether or not that's good policy, but it, it, if the argument is that it's good policy, then I think it should be applied universally. And frankly, I really do believe, I go back to my earlier point, which is that folks that leave office early, their need, those constituents deserve better. Now, is any of this, in your opinion, going to really affect the climate in Jefferson City, which, you know, was the stuff that we've been talking about now and also the whole thing about behavior? I mean, in that way, they are connected. There's the cold climate. Just so our listeners know, the night of the night of the state of the state address, there was at least three major receptions that legislators could attend that were put up that were held by various uh, groups, the realtors for one, Missouri Chamber for the other, uh, so they could basically be wined and dined before they then came back to listen to the governor. I, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but my point is is that there is this whole somewhat of a party atmosphere and where that some have criticized, some have not. I'm just interested in whether you think any of this that we've been discussing is going to affect any of that. Um Frankly, I, I don't. I don't think so. I mean, we do have a. We did uh, pass out a committee this week, and we'll be hearing it on the floor next week, I believe. Uh, a lobbyist gift ban, um, and we sort of tortured that one. There's a lot of language in it that I didn't agree with, but um, it will still. All of those receptions that you spoke of would still be happening under this proposed new law. So, if Representative Alferman's bill that we heard in government oversight last week becomes law. Those invitations to the entire General Assembly and those receptions would still occur. And I don't think that – I don't know that that um, – when we talk about the culture and the behavior, I, I know that – I believe that Representative Salone from Kansas City area has filed a bill about no alcohol in the Capitol. And, you know, I think that – is drinking a problem? Yeah. Um, but can we legislate everything I don't. I don't know that we can. Isn't that just part of the re- legislator's responsibility? Maybe if you don't like the fact that people are taking lobbyist gifts, don't take them. If you don't like the fact that there's drinking in the Capitol, don't drink. Right. I mean, and then going back to the sexual harassment thing, it, it it seems like it's the lawmakers' responsibility, especially the male lawmakers, to not treat women with disrespect as they've been doing. Where's the personal responsibility here, basically? I, I think I think that's the I think that's exactly the point. And I think that um I, you know, I know that my constituents feel very strongly about a lot of this. Um I, I do not have a personally an all out ban on lobbyist gifts, but I think I'm number hundred and thirty. <laughs> it's not it's not a lot. I, I that's I think frankly, look Jay Barnes from Cole County and I don't agree on a lot of things, but I think that one thing we do agree on, and he's the chair of the committees that have been hearing these ethics bills, is that these ethics reforms need to uh, help ensure the public trust. They need to create transparency and um, 
and they need to avoid what we call gotchas. In other words, we're human. We're lawmakers, but we are human. So, so and I think that the bills that we put forward don't necessarily fill all of those requirements. I would much rather see a lobbyist bill that says you can't accept more than X dollars. Make it $200. I don't care. We can talk about the nominal cup of coffee. That can be a problem. But why not just say there's a dollar limit. That's what it's going to be. You can't go over it. Then we're not fighting over whether or not a lobbyist can send you a plant if you have a child or somebody in your family dies, um, which just gets to, it gets into the minutia too much. And we're not worried about sort of what we call the gotcha moments where somebody doesn't report something or is worried about something just by simple human error. Now, one of the things that's interested me, because I've been looking into some of this, is just give you an example. Um, legislators and the lobbyists are supposed to be reporting monthly whatever gifts. Okay, December, for example. So there's the December stuff. The reports are due in early January. Okay, so the reports are filed in early January. However, the reports are then presented to the legislator who has several weeks to either say, yes, I did get this gift, or no, I didn't, or yes, I did take that cup of coffee. So it's February before the December gifts are even ever made public. My point being is that even I, I, maybe I was naive, but I had no idea that the legislators actually can strike off things in these reports. So, um, I mean, in theory, some legislators might, I'm not going to accuse anybody of any wrongdoing, but they could be striking off stuff because they don't want to look like there's too much or whatever. That just struck me that the legislators have veto power basically over what's reported on their own gifts. I thought though that those ultimately would say amended. And 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 yeah, and I, 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 I I get your point. And but here's here's a good reason why is for instance, um, I'm trying to think of a good example. I, uh, the freshman tour. I think that there was a stop at a company in Kansas City, and that company put out a spread of I don't know chips and sodas. Okay, okay. nothing fancy, no steaks, no lobster. Okay, okay. okay. no no alcohol even. And um, that got reported to everybody that was on those buses for, I don't know, $15. That stop was right after lunch. I don't think anybody drank a soda or took a chip, and everybody got hit for that. So that's that's one issue okay. time where, where, where it's not necessarily, you know, where it might not be fair. Another instance is that um, you could go out to dinner and, and um, the lobbyist pays for it and, and – Maybe it's a group of people I don't know, and and you want to and you want to pay the lobbyist back. You know that you intended to pay for it at the time, and you forgot. I mean that can sometimes happen. And I think or there are occasions too when like a lawmaker may have a lobbyist pay if a, a school trip is coming, they want to buy them pizzas, and it's expensive. It's like two hundred dollars, but that's not necessarily benefiting them. It's benefiting the kids that are going there, and that happens a lot. Yeah, so it's sometimes these things are less than meet the eye. In the last few minutes that we have, we just kind of wanted to get your take on like what are the other big issues you think are going to come down the pike in the next few months in the General Assembly? Well, we saw that there's a tort reform bill, I think, that's coming out of the Senate that'll be heading over to the House. Uh, we heard, you know, we heard the Republican response to the state of the state address. And so I guess that, um, you know, the, the, the I'm probably more focused on what's not coming down, which would be Medicaid expansion, Missouri Non-Discrimination Act, and frankly, the Ferguson stuff that we spoke about earlier. Um, there are bills that are filed, and we'll, let's hope that we can get some hearings on that. I think that what we are going to see instead, though, is are things like an, another healthy debate about tort reform. We already saw voter ID got passed out of the House this week, and it's headed to the Senate. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. How are the Democrats going to um, 
approach, that whole photo ID um, bill, and since it has gotten announced already going to the Senate. Well, I could say that the irony was not lost on the Democratic caucus, and I don't believe on the press as well, that two things. First of all, that we were fighting about uh, disenfranchising voters in the week that we're celebrating Martin Luther King Jr., and that we're also talking about photographic ID at a time when the state of Missouri doesn't even have an ID that would get us on a federal, on an airplane. We're talking about real ID. We, we've written about that. Look it up, but continue. Yeah. So, I mean, so it, it, to me, the irony is not lost on the fact that... Um, um, Republicans aren't interested in complying with Real ID, a federal law that was uh, proposed by the 9-11 Commission and signed into law by President George W. Bush in order to create safety for air, for all kinds of things, including flying on airplanes, which, for the record, is not a constitutional right, and at the same time believes that the, I, the photo IDs that our state is doing, which do not comply with federal law, is perfectly fine to disenfranchise somebody from exercising you, a vo- right to vote, which is a constitutional right. Do you think right. that the Republicans are pushing voter ID especially hard because there's an open Secretary of State race and they want to put it on the ballot maybe to help the Republican nominee? You know, a lot of that can be sort of inside baseball. I think, honestly, I think that it's it's an issue that is a national issue for the Republican Party. So I don't think that the state of Missouri and the specifics of this election cycle um, are unique and the fact that it's been going on for, what, nine years? I they've feel been like this is, this is year 10 of me covering Missouri politics. I think I've covered it <laughs> every other year since that. It's the issue that never goes away, right. essentially. Now, as any, besides being a legislator, you've also been pretty active in area Democratic politics. I'm just interested in your take in general on the fact that the Democrats seem to have had tr- trouble uh, getting a statewide ticket together other than Coster and um, Secretary of State Kander, who's now running for the U.S. Senate. It seems like for the most part, now, granted, uh, former Congressman Russ Carnahan recently filed, recently announced he's going to run for lieutenant governor. But I'm just interested in your take on how organized are the Democrats going into 2016 and have any general sense or if you guys are going to be able to either chip away at those veto-proof majorities or have a strong statewide ticket. I'm just interested in your take. Well, again, I think that uh, Attorney General Coster as our sort of presumptive nominee at the top of, at the top of the ticket will be will be helpful. Um, do I wish that we had a stronger lineup on the statewide? Um, you know, yes. Uh, do I think that we will have some other candidates come out? Probably. Uh, we, you know, we're going to have a primary. It looks like in the Attorney General race, and that's a little bit troublesome to me as a Democrat. I would obviously prefer not to have that happen. But um, as to kicking, uh, chipping away at the at the majority, yeah, I think that there are some real opportunities there, particularly in a presidential year um, and in a year when we have a lot of members that are termed out, um, unfortunately, on both sides of the aisle. But um, but on the Republican side, obviously, there's a larger number than there are on my side of the aisle. So, yeah, I think that there are definitely opportunities there. And, you know, every year, every election year is different. Um, you guys know that. And so it's it's hard to tell. It's hard to predict what the turnout's going to be. We're seeing a Democratic primary for president that I think that a year ago no one would have expected. So we'll see what happens. We will have to see. Maybe it'll be Bernie Sanders versus Donald Trump, but maybe it will not be. We can't predict the future <laughs> on the Politically Speaking podcast. Thank you so much for coming and talking with us today. Thank you. It was my pleasure. And uh, all of our stories are stlpublicradio.org. You can follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. You can follow Joe on Twitter at, at Jay Manis. That's J M A N N I E S. And how would we follow you on Twitter? GC Mitts at GC Mitts. We will be back next time. Until then, so long. <laughs> <laughs>